Have you ever heard of a real-life haunting? Maybe in your area? An unsuspecting home on an unsuspecting street? And as for what goes on there, who do you believe? Well, surely the people living there have a wild yarn to spin. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who's generally too busy to stop and ogle on the lawn of the latest and greatest nearby demon haunt. This week, though, we will lock ourselves inside a house where three generations of one family were afflicted by a virulent haunting for more than a decade. Children were terrorized, parents were humiliated, family members were turned against one another by the dark entities that plagued them. Let's dive in to the Smurl haunting. the 1970s in the northeast of the United States. So many mullets, so much polyester, so many hauntings. What was it with the hauntings? It's like everywhere you looked, some white family with 7,000 children, to me, any more than one kid might as well be 7,000 kids, were running around in their bell-bottoms and their candies espadrilles, claiming that a demon was haunting their wood-paneled, shag-carpeted home. I covered a couple of them last year. There was Amityville, the Perone family, the Snedeker house, and the subject of today's episode, Jack and Janet Smurl and their four children. Actually, full disclosure, I googled it, and those are about all the famous hauntings from that era. So it's really only a few, but it feels like it was all the time all over the East Coast, okay? Maybe it's just Hollywood that made me think there were as many hauntings as there were pet rocks. Just let me have this one. Anyway, here's the story of this haunting, starting with the hauntees. Jack Smurl and Janet Domoski met at a Christmas party in their small northeastern Pennsylvania town in 1967. They married a year later. Despite having served in the Navy as a neuropsychiatric technician, in civilian life, Jack was middle management at a confectioner company where Janet also worked until they had their first two children, Dawn and Kim, when she quit work to become a stay-at-home mom and housewife. In 1972, the Smurls' home in Wilkes-Barre that they shared with Jack's parents, John and Mary, was flooded in Hurricane Agnes. Apparently, Jack and Janet renovated the house after the flood, but despite that, for reasons that are unclear, Uncle Sam came along and was like, thank you for your service to our country, and we'll take that thank you, and literally forced them to move. I can only hope they got properly compensated in the deal, but knowing what I know about eminent domain, I'm going to guess they didn't. Needless to say, the Smurls probably found themselves in a state of financial hardship once this happened. So, the Smurls, including Grandma and Grandpa, moved to nearby West Pittston to a duplex they bought for, brace yourselves, $18,000. According to the book The Haunted by journalist Robert Curran, with help from Jack and Janet and two others who I'll get to later, trust me. Life in West Pittston was even better than their previous married years had been. Janet became active in the community and helped form the West Pittston Lionesses Club, serving as its first president. She was also one of the organizers of the local chapter of Students Against Drunk Driving at the Wyoming Area High School. Jack and Janet participated together in community activities as well. 
the couple helped form a girls' softball league, and they worked long hours on the Cherry Blossom Festival, which aided community civic and youth groups. Jack was active in the West Pittston Lions Club and was club secretary for two years. For the first 18 months at their new address, their hours were filled with kids and grocery shopping and mass and civic group meetings and long, long hours of work. Janet at ironing board and sink and stove. Jack at the plant, where he was on his way to a mid-management position. Those who knew the Smurls in that first 18-month period said they'd rarely known happier couples. And far be it from me to question someone's happiness, but never in my life have I met a woman who was happy being chained to an ironing board, sink, and stove. In January of 1974, after 18 months of apparent domestic bliss, Janet ordered a new carpet. After it had been installed, Janet noticed what looked like a large, round grease stain. For some reason, rather than return the carpet, she opted to clean it herself because, you know, she didn't have enough on her plate. And out it came. But then, two days later, it was back. This happened over and over again. She would clean the stain, and there it would be a couple days later. No sooner did the annoying stain that won't go away incident pass than shit starts to spontaneously combust into flames in and around the house. First it's the TV, then the toaster and electric stove, all of which you can be like, well, sure, faulty wiring, but then it's the wiring in Jack's brand new car that burst into flames. Then again, that is what lemon laws are for. The Smurls then claimed that freshly soldered pipes started leaking and the brand new sink and bathtub and walls were found with inexplicable claw-like scratch marks. It's worth noting that they didn't think to take any photographic evidence of the mysterious damage being done inside their home. And this is when the Smurls' oldest daughter, Dawn, reported seeing people floating around her room. By 1977, with a set of brand new twin babies, shit in the Smurl house got worse. Toilets flushed on their own, which honestly doesn't sound like the worst thing. I live with some people who could use some help in this department. Phantom footsteps wandered through the house when no one but Janet was home. Drawers opened and closed by themselves. The radio would turn itself on without warning. And, of course, the rocking chair would rock and creak without anyone in it because it's not a real haunting until there's an empty rocking chair moving by itself. Everyone knows that's the first rule of ghost stories. And now, the Smurls were smelling sour and vile smells throughout the house. In short, things were definitely not right in the Smurl household, and they would eventually get a whole lot worse. If the book The Haunted is any indication, the next seven years were relatively haunt-free for the Smurls. The only thing noted in the book between 1977 and 1985 is that for the entire year of 1984, the house smelled foul. Apparently, it was not Jack's feet, which was, believe it or not, the family's first theory. Which, I have to say, if your feet smell bad enough that a demon possession can be mistaken for them, you might want to consider some tough actin tenactin. It's interesting, to me anyway, that there's this seven-year gap in whatever phenomenon the Smurls were experiencing. Like, what the hell happened to whatever ghosts were hanging around the house that they just forgot to scratch bathtubs and set stuff on fire for a handful of years? Did they somehow manage to get a life for a little while? 
I always thought of ghosts as pretty relentless. Then again, what do I know? But the respite ended in 1985 rather abruptly, it seems. The house would get icy cold, which is another square on the bingo card of house hauntings if you're playing along at home. And the in-laws next door heard Jack and Janet screaming obscenities at each other, even though Jack was apparently off at work and Janet was alone in the house. In the movie based on the book The Haunted, Jack's mother is only angry at Janet for this because, she explains, my Jack has never used language like that in his life. To which I replied out loud, what fucking planet do you live on, lady? After the rude ghost got Janet in trouble for cursing at a grown-ass adult man, a shapeless, featureless form appeared in Janet's kitchen, went through the wall adjoining the units, and materialized in mother-in-law Mary's kitchen on the opposite side. I'm sure Mary found a way to blame this on Janet, too. And then, on the night of 13-year-old Heather's confirmation, a ceiling fan crashed to the floor below without warning. According to a blog called The Cobra's Nose, the ceiling fan, quote, crashed down inches from Shannon, one of the young twins, nearly killing her. And this is a great example of how stories get twisted and embellished over time. In the book, which, remember, was written with the help of the Smurls themselves, the ceiling fan actually hit Shannon on the shoulder, and far from nearly dying, she went off to her sister's confirmation without so much as a doctor's visit. One night, after Jack and Janet had had sex, Janet was violently pulled off the bed by an unseen force. Jack couldn't intervene because he was frozen and gagging from a foul odor. And I'm sorry, but I find this impossible to swallow. You want me to believe that two people with four children, one with a full-time job and side hustle at the Lions Club, and the other with a full-time job at home and various civic involvements, have the energy to have sex? This is the most implausible aspect of the whole story. Also, maybe the hauntings are a result of being sleep-deprived. Anyway... The ghost, or whatever it was, then began attacking the family's German shepherd, Simon. Out of nowhere, Simon would get picked up and tossed into furniture, or would suddenly twitch and contort in pain, as if being squeezed by something. Once, the ghost, or whatever it was, managed to dematerialize the poor dog right through a wall, like a ghost. There was the requisite tapping and scratching in the walls that is another staple of a haunting. And then, little Shannon was pulled from her bed and tossed down the stairs. To be fair, again, this seems like another bit of creative embellishment. The Smurls heard a thudding late at night after everyone was in bed and found Shannon crumpled up at the bottom of the stairs. Apparently, they decided she must have been flung from her bed all the way down the stairs because it would have been, quote, impossible that they slept through her footsteps walking down the hall. You know what else is impossible? All of this. You're telling me you can't believe that your youngest daughter either woke up and fell down the stairs or slept walked and fell down the stairs, but you can believe you have ghosts in your house? Look, I'm not saying you don't have ghosts in your house. I'm just saying if you're willing to believe that, then you also have to be willing to believe in more plausible explanations. At any rate, 
It was around this time that the Smurls couldn't take anymore, and they reached out to our good friends Ed and Lorraine Warren, who you may remember from my episode about the Perone family and The Conjuring, and who were made famous by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga in the franchise of Conjuring movies. Ed and Lorraine were psychic researchers and demonologists who supposedly never charged people to investigate their haunting claims and only made money through lecturing. And, of course, in multiple books and movie deals made using their clients' stories. The Warrens started by interviewing the Smurls about their home life. What were their religious beliefs? Of course, it was best if you were a good Christian because Jesus or whatever. Never mind that it seems like most possessions seem to happen to religious people, prompting me to ask, Where's your Messiah now? Was there any domestic abuse in the house, any Satanism, any fucking around with Ouija boards, etc.? And honestly, I'm not sure what they really hoped to glean from this line of questioning. Like the Smurls would have admitted to domestic violence or child abuse, but whatever. The Warrens investigated the house and determined that there were four spirits hanging around and causing all the trouble. Three of the four were minor and could be easily disposed of through good old-fashioned prayer. One was apparently a senile old woman who was just confused. I guess she'd lost her map to heaven? Poor thing. But it was the fourth spirit who was going to be more difficult to handle. That one was a full-on demon. The demon, the Warrens explained, had probably been in the house for decades and had laid dormant until the Smurl's youngest daughters hit puberty. Ed explained. It's like I said before, Jack, I suspect that the demon has been in the house dormant for decades. That I can't be sure of. But one thing I know is that your girls reaching puberty gave the demon energy. That's the classical patterns. Puberty often brings on infestations. The demon is drawing on their emotional turbulence and now it's tapping into yours. And Lorraine further explained... One aspect of their predicament ran consistent with the classic pattern. Demonic spirits are often attracted to houses where young girls are going through puberty. The spirits draw on the particular type of energy the girls emit, the emotional level being very high, and ideal for a spirit to feed on. The girls were at fault for their sin of menstruation, of course! How did we not see that coming? The Warrens attempted to expel the demon themselves, splashing holy water all over the place while yelling about the power of Christ compelling you. The demon then wrote a message to the humans on a mirror in silver lettering that read, You filthy bastard, get out of this house. Ed, despite being frozen from another sudden temperature drop and overcome by a foul odor, waved his magic wand, I mean crucifix, and said Jesus a bunch, and the demon seemingly went away. Things were quiet for a few days, but then the demon returned, this time in the form of a real butterface. In a taped interview the next day between Ed and Jack, Jack said, To be honest, I even hate to think about her. Her skin was uh, paper white, but it was covered in some places with the scaly surface I mentioned, and then in other places with open sores, the kind you'd think a leper would have or something. And, um... These sores were running with pus. How old was she? I would estimate around 65 or 70. I can't be sure. 
What else did you first notice about her? She had long, white, scraggly hair, and her eyes were all red, and the inside of her mouth and her gums were green. Some of her teeth were missing, but uh, those she had were very long and vampire-like. Her body itself was firm, you know, like that of a younger woman. So, the demon with the hot, albeit scaly and pus-covered body paralyzed Jack and raped him. Jack swore up and down he got no pleasure from the experience. The demon, on the other hand, apparently came several times, and then... She vanished. Just like that. Just like that. Just vanished. And that's when I noticed the sticky substance all over me. I suppose you'd have to compare it to semen. The texture of it, anyway. It was emitted through the creature's vagina. She came... All over his body, folks, Jack Smurl had a dick-like magic. Incidentally, this story is how I learned that a demon that rapes a man is called a succubus, while a demon who rapes a woman is called an incubus, which means there used to be a band literally named after a demon that rapes women. So that's fun. After the demon rape, the Smurls and Warrens decided it was time to bring in the big guns and contacted Father McKenna, a Roman Catholic priest who joined the party and did a good old-fashioned exorcism. But this succubus did not come to play, and the exorcism only made it matter. Not only did the tapping, scratching, and foul odors continued, but now, it seems, the demon was using the classic divide-and-conquer method of haunting, where it started stealing things from the daughters so they would think they were stealing from each other and causing chaos. Even worse, little Karen, one of the four Smurl daughters, got so sick she ended up in the hospital. Here's how it's described in the book. Finally, Janet called one night and said, Thank God, Ed, her fever broke today. At last, the doctors took control of the little girl's life. But by now, we knew sadly and for certain, as did Father McKenna, that the exorcism had failed. Exasperated, exhausted, and terrified, the Smurls finally did what you've probably been suggesting through the proverbial podcast screen this whole time. They left on vacation to go camping in the Poconos. But the trip would prove anything but restful when the demon appeared at their campsite, this time as a young girl, and picked up a huge steel barrel garbage can, spinning it around in midair. When the family tried to escape for home, their car began to vibrate so violently that they had to pull over and wait for it to stop. Back at home, the demon continued to pick up and toss family members and even spoke to them, saying, quote, One strike, two strikes, three strikes, and you're out, end quote. So at least we know this demon was a baseball fan. But then things got sexual again when the demon touched Janet inappropriately. Although, to be fair, is there ever an appropriate way to be touched by a demon? And then threw her off the couch and choked her nearly to death. Janet said the only thing that saved her was that she pictured herself being one with Jesus, which begs the question, where was Jesus up until that point? Like, does he really need to wait for someone to visualize him? Can't he just be like, oh no, one of my flock is in danger. Let me go tend to them. I don't understand how summoning Jesus works. And so they called in Father McKenna again to do another exorcism. You know, because the first one worked like gangbusters. And wouldn't you know it, 
that one failed too. Despite the failure of two exorcisms and the general impotence of invoking Jesus' name, the Smurls decided it was more religion that would put an end to this nightmare. But no one in the church diocese was interested in touching this situation. Rather than find answers backed in anything other than religion, the Smurls decided the best move would be to go to the press in order to pressure the church into helping them. Because if the priest sex abuse scandal has taught us anything, it's that the church definitely responds well to media exposure. The Smurls began testing the media's waters starting in July 1986, when they appeared on a local Philadelphia talk show called People Are Talking. That was the title? Yikes. I am bad at branding, but that's a terrible name for a TV show. You might as well call it People Are Alive. Unfortunately, there's no footage or audio of this interview, but according to the book, Jack and Janet were hidden behind a screen for anonymity purposes, which is confusing given their stated goal for going to the press was to get the church's attention. And, as one can imagine, the demon was not pleased with the Smurls for this stunt, and the torture in the house got worse over the following weeks. Janet was thrown around some more, and Jack was not only visited by a snarling, drooling, eight-foot-tall, pig-like creature, but he was also, once again, raped by a succubus with a tight bod and gross face. Lord. And so the Smurls went more public with their story, this time showing their faces and granting interviews to the media. The media frenzy turned the Smurls' duplex into a tourist attraction, with people from all over camping out out front to see if they could get a glimpse of the demon that had tormented this family for almost a decade, give or take. It probably goes without saying that no one saw anything unusual happening inside the Smurl home. If anything, the spectacle was outside. A local police officer said... It would be two, three, four in the morning, and they would just stand there, staring at the house. Some of them would sneak on the porch for a look. Others would climb a tree. I'd stand there and look at them and wonder why they were here. To be fair, I don't think he was from Brooklyn, but that's how all police sound in my mind. In August of that year, despite my earlier snarky comment about the church and the press, the Diocese of Scranton did finally respond to the Smurls' pleas for help. They contacted Reverend Alphonsus Trabold, a professor of theology from New York City, to investigate, with the directive that he do his best to find a more scientific explanation for the Smurls' claims. Oddly, Trabold never actually went and investigated the home, and ultimately admitted something was going on, but would not attribute it to anything demonic. Shrug? While the Smurls had allowed priests, TV crews, and a mentalist who went by the name The Amazing Kreskin inside their home, they had refused up until that point to allow in actual scientists who might be able to offer an alternative explanation. That same month, the AP ran a story with the headline, Family Claiming Demon Visitation Will Review Scientific Proposals. Apparently, while the Smurls and the Warrens were essentially putting their fingers in their ears and going la-la-la to anyone other than the church, some actual scientists and non-church people had come forward to be like, hey, let us help you try to figure out what's going on. I suppose there was only so long the Smurls could justify refusing help from anyone but the church before it would start to look 
kind of suspicious, you know? And so they told the press that they had proposals that they wanted to review to make sure they were legitimate. Janet told the AP reporter, We are looking for somebody very reputable. Because the Warrens had really proven themselves legitimate so far. This was after the whole Amityville debacle that the Warrens had a heavy hand in, which most people already knew had been a hoax. The Warrens had done nothing to actually help the Smurls in all of this. If anything, their interventions had only made things worse. Indeed, the only thing the Warrens had done was believe them. Also, Ed was being combative with the press. He claimed to have recordings, but wouldn't release them until the Catholic Church reviewed them. And when one reporter called out, show us something, give us something to go with, Ed called the reporter obnoxious for doing his job. One such request the Smurls said they were reviewing came from Paul Kurtz, chairman of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal in Buffalo, New York, or Kasai Kapibu. Kurtz offered to put the family up in a hotel while he investigated the house and offered them free psychological evaluation. It didn't take the Smurls long to decline the offer, to which Kurtz replied in the press, quote, There is no explanation for the Smurl house, but I wouldn't simply assume it is a haunting. It seems to us that a great to-do has been made about it, and we wonder if it is like the Amityville horror hoax, which was based on imagination rather than on actual haunting. End quote. Later, Kurtz would claim in an article he wrote for Skeptical Inquirer that the Smurls denied his organization access to their house because they knew there was nothing supernatural going on. He pointed to inconsistencies in the story, the Warrens' proven track record of unreliability, the complete lack of police reports despite Janet claiming to have gone to the police, and said there were far more likely explanations such as abandoned mine voids in the area causing weird sounds, delusions, broken sewer pipes, or pranks. Also, it's worth mentioning here that for all the tossing, choking, and raping going on in the Smurl house, there doesn't appear to be evidence of a single visit to a doctor or emergency room. One would think if they were being flung into walls and downstairs, there would have been one or two broken bones. Just two days after the AP article came out, the Smurls put the kibosh on the media frenzy. Jack complained about the constant flow of traffic outside his home from looky-loos trying to get a glimpse of the paranormal activities inside his home. But honestly, I mean, what did he expect? You go public with a claim that a demon is tormenting your family? People are going to want to see it. It's not every day you get to see a succubus IRL, you know what I mean? It turns out, though, that it was likely not the media frenzy outside their home that prompted the Smurls to suddenly go quiet and send the media packing. Two weeks later, word got out that the Smurls were in talks with a Hollywood producer. Because of course they were. And in 1986, St. Martin's Press announced plans to publish a book about the ordeal written by reporter Robert Curran. And wouldn't you know, not only were Jack and Janet paid for the rights to their story, but Ed and Lorraine Warren managed to get a piece of the book deal, too, as co-contributors. By the time the book came out around Christmas of 1988, the house had been exercised two more times, with the final one being deemed a success, which is remarkable timing, seeing as how they'd already made their money from the book and movie deals. 
The book was a commercial success, but slammed by critics for not being objective enough. The complaint was that Kern painted a very slanted portrait of the alleged goings-on in the Smurl household. I skimmed the book, and I would say the problem is not just that it's a one-sided version, which it definitely is, but rather that it's pretty poorly written. It's confusing and rambly and just not very good. The made-for-TV movie was released in 1991 on Fox. It begins with a text crawl that says, The following is a dramatization of actual experiences that happened to Jack and Janet Smurl and their family. Which, right out of the gate, is a super questionable thing to open with. You know people will read that and be like, This actually happened! Rather than, This is a thing that may or may not have happened, I'm going to take an edible and go along for the ride. Like, maybe what they meant was, the following is a dramatization of claims made by Jack and Janet Smurl. I don't know how much the Smurls got selling the rights to their story. Whatever it was, I wonder if it was worth all the fuss. How much money would it take to make a demon haunting worth it? Or, more to the point, how much money would be enough to cover all the people involved in crafting this hoax? Although at the end of the day, I suppose the story really only needed Jack and Janet and two willing accomplices, Ed and Lorraine Warren. There was never any evidence produced, and for all we know, Jack's parents had nothing to do with any of it. Same goes for the four daughters. Jack passed away in 2017 at the age of 75 and was remembered extremely fondly not only by his family, but friends and community members as well. Let's hope he has moved on to a better place and won't be stuck in some purgatory with his rapist succubus haunting the remaining Smurls for the rest of their natural lives. It's funny how listening back to the Smurl story, it sounds like your run-of-the-mill, running-off-the-rails haunted house movie from the edge of the 20th century. Maybe you picked up on the ways Jack and Janet seemed to create the whole thing along the way. And I'll hand that to them. They conjured up a demon of a tall tale and put it on display for all of us to see. What is haunting is that all the spectators who got roped into this, most notably the Smurl kids, but also all the onlookers, spent actual time and brain power trying to figure out what the hell was going on in that house with that family, when the answer would prove as uncomplicated as an opportunistic lie can get. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, what if there was another you out there somewhere? What if there were multiple yous in multiple other universes, some where our own laws of physics don't apply? Let's take a trip into the multiverse. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Lauren Hooper, and Luther Creek. 
Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 